yeah, my name's Hans, I'm one of the pastors here. Um, you may want a, an outline for this sermon. Um, if you didn't grab one on the way in, Kate's got some up the back so you, so you can do that. Um, but um, one of the things that we do every, every Sunday is we give away a good uh, Christian book. And I think this is an extru- this may be the most important book for some of the people here. It's called The Death of Porn, Men of Integrity, Building a World of Nobility by Ray Ortland. It is the best book if you are struggling with pornography or you know someone who is struggling with pornography. Now, here's the thing. What we usually do is I put it down the front and someone comes along and gets this. I'm assuming that no one is going to be brave enough if they are struggling just to walk out the front and pick up this book. Here's what we're doing, though. I've got seven copies of this book, right? And what I'm going to do after tonight's service, at the 5 p.m. service, I'm just going to put it in the church's mailbox. And I'm going to check uh, whether it's gone um, at 5 p.m. And if it's gone, I'll put another one there and another one. And you can pick it up whenever you want. This is, if you are struggling, this may be the first step. And please take that step. So I will put it down there. I don't think anyone will get it, but um, that's where we're at. Okay, so really important. And if you are struggling this area or an area in your marriage, once again, please come and see uh, me or Tim or Kate. This, um, as I said last week, this sermon series has generated a lot of, uh, a lot of conversations. There's been a lot of pastoral conversations that, are, that have already happened, and that's actually a good thing. That is a good thing. And please don't feel like you can't bring whatever's troubling you out and talk about it. We, we would love to help you in any way we can. I'm going to pray as we look at this passage and this last sermon for this series. Let's pray. Father God, as we look at uh, this very famous psalm, I pray that you would speak to us through it. And Lord, I do pray that for those of us who are, who are crippled with guilt and shame because of our sin, maybe persistent sin, that you would, you would minister to us. You would help us to see what Jesus has done afresh for us. And this may be the first step in, in helping us deal with our sin, our guilt and our shame. Lord, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I remember one time watching Oprah, of all things, and I was, I was there watching Oprah, and there was a psychologist uh, on there, and he said, and I forget who that psychologist is, he said, the thing that is going to wound you more than anything in this world is your guilt and your shame. Now, I forget what his solution was to that, but I can remember those two things that he said. The thing that is going to wound you more than anything else in this, in this world is your guilt and your shame. And can I just say, I've been in pastoral ministry for almost 20 years, for actually over 20 years now, and I think he's right. The majority of conversations that I've had where people are stagnant in their Christian faith what, uh, what we uncover is there has been a pattern of sin and the person is feeling guilty and shameful and this is totally holding them back. Now, now there's other things that are happening in our lives that hold us back from uh, being the Christians that we want to be or being the people that we want to be. But what I have seen over and over again, that undealt with guilt and shame and unconfessed sin destroys Christian lives. And so how are you dealing with your guilt and your shame today? 
I wonder if you're here and you have got something that you are hiding, something that, that, is, that is something that you do in secret, in private. Maybe it is something that you are harboring, a relationship that you are harboring and you know is wrong. And, and, and there's this thing as, as you, you do it, you don't want to do it, but you keep on doing it and you feel guilty and, and as Steve read out uh, Romans 7, you were just like going, Paul is speaking my language. Because Paul is saying that there is sin that I don't want to do and I find myself doing it. Even though I feel bad for it, I go back to it over and over again. And what happens is a lot of the time we do something that we, that we know we shouldn't do because maybe we're down or we're tired or something like this. And then we've done it and we feel terrible only moments afterwards. And then we feel guilt. And that guilt actually makes us feel worse. And so what we do is we go back to the sin and we do it again. And there's this guilt and shame spiral that goes down over and over again. And this is especially true when we talk about sex and sexuality. And so I wonder if you are here and you are struggling with pornography or you're addicted to pornography or you're having an affair at the, at the moment or there's sin in your marriage, there's unforgiveness, there's anger in your marriage that you will not let go because you feel like you are right and they are wrong. And you know it's harming your marriage but, but you actually don't want to deal with it. How are you dealing with that sin, but also the guilt and shame that attends that sin? Because our world says, actually, you can deal with it in very poor ways. First of all, what we like to do is we make excuses. Well, I do this because my work's tough, or I don't get this from my marriage, or or my family of origin, or my culture, or whatever. They're all, we can make excuses like that. Or we pass the buck. We say, I do this, but if that person gave me this or that person gave me that, I wouldn't be doing that. Or we're self-righteous about it. Or, well, I do this, but, mate, I'm not as sinful as such and such or that person. Uh, you know, I may do this sin, but it's not as bad as this. Or we mask it up. We, we, we give off the, this impression that my life is so, so hard so that no one will actually ask us about those, those sins. No one will ask us the really hard things. Or our other mask is we put on a mask like we've got it all together. We've got it all together. And can I just say, for upper middle class people like we are, we, we, we put on masks all the time to make everyone think that we've got it all together. And therefore, when that happens, people are very unlikely to ask us about our patterns of sin. And so we can harbour sin over years and sometimes decades and no one will ever think. And yet our relationships, both human and with our God, suffer. And so can I ask you, if you are dealing with your guilt, your shame or your sin like that in, in any of those ways or any other way like that is not bring it before God or bring and bring it before Christian brothers and sisters who love you. How is it working for you? Have you been able to deal with your guilt or is it really there over and over again? 
Are you actually embarrassed that I'm speaking about it, frankly, right now? Uh, are, are, you, are you going, oh, hands, I wish you could be just speaking about it. Just talk about the love of God. Don't worry, I will be talking about the love of God. But a lot of the time, what happens is we just tune out of what's uncomfortable because it's too hard to deal with the sin and the guilt and the shame in our lives. And yet, God doesn't want us to do that. But here's the great thing. One of the greatest figures in the history, in the Bible, King David, he knows a ton about guilt and shame. And yet, through God's grace, David finds forgiveness. He finds cleansing and true change that results in joyful praise. No matter your sin right now, that can be your story. No matter what sin you are in, that can be your story. You too can find forgiveness, cleansing, true change that results in joyful praise. Because we're going to see today how how David gets that. And can I ask you, if you are here, what would you rather have? Would you rather have a bucket load of guilt and sin and shame? Or will you have a joyous life that is full of forgiveness and grace from God? That's your question. That's your choice today. Guilt and shame or forgiveness, cleansing and joy. If you've never heard the story of David, the story that's in the background or the little snippet of a story that's in the background of this psalm is from 2 Samuel 11 and 12. But here is the shortened version. David is the king, and it's a period of time where he should have been on the front lines of battle, but he's not. He's walking around his palace at night, and what I think it happens is he sees a beautiful woman, and he uses her, his power and persuasion and also his authority and place in life to sleep with her. She falls pregnant, and he tries to make it so that, you know, him, uh, his wife, his, sorry, his lover's wife, uh, husband, sleeps with her and he won't because he's meant to be on the front line. And so David has this woman's husband killed. And then one of David's friends calls him out, calls out his sin. And he's feeling guilty and ashamed and so he writes this psalm, Psalm 51. And as we look at this psalm, we're going to see three things. We're going to see David's God, David's plea, and David's prayer. David's God, David's plea, and David's prayer. Well, let's have a look at David's God. Let's have a look at verse 1 and 2. It says this, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion. Blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Notice what he's asking here. He's asking for mercy. He's asking that God would not treat him as his sins deserve. He's saying, according to your great love. The word under that great love is the word hesed. It gives this impression that God's love never gives up because God is in this kind of covenant relationship with David and Israel. He's saying, according to that great love, have compassion on me. David is appealing to the emotional kind of bank account of God. God has got this this overwhelming, infinite emotional bank account towards his people. That is, David knows that God is not the God who has a relationship with someone and looks at their sin and goes, I can't deal with this anymore. 
God is the God who forgives and forgives and forgives. Here is the character of God. And so the reason that David and you and I can appeal to God for his forgiveness is because of who he is. He is the God who loves to forgive. He is energized by sinners who come to him for forgiveness. He's not repelled by them. And notice what what David has asked in verse 2. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. He's asking to be totally cleansed. Much like, it's almost like the analogy of of if we go out and we work in in, in a field or out the back maybe mowing a lawn or something and we're dirty and we come in and we have a shower. David is saying, could you do that to me spiritually? Cleanse me from all my sin. But notice also the way David talks about his sin. Have a look at verse 3. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Notice how he's not excusing his sin. He he is taking full responsibility for them. I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. He is not saying, uh, he's not uh, trying to palm them off onto somebody. He, He says, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you're judged. He does not minimize his sin, but he does not kind of say, hey, God, you are wrong for judging me. No, you can see that he has come face to face with his sin and the Holy Spirit is working in his life. Why? Because he actually is not only coming face to face with his sin, but he's totally fine for God's assessment of his sin and God's judgment about his sin. One of the ways that we have to deal with our sin is not excuse it, is not call it other names for what it is, but to actually deal with it, to call it for what it is. I remember going to uh, uh, my counsellor and I was talking um, with my counsellor about a particular sin, the sin of anger that 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 I was struggling with. And I said, I really struggle with anger. And he goes, do you really? I said, what do you mean? And I said, uh, he said, do you struggle with it? And I said, yeah, I, I do. He goes, no, 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 no. Struggle means that you are fighting it. It sounds to me, hands like you're giving in to your sin. You have not, you have not really come face to face with it. You are not struggling with it at all. You are just giving, giving into it. And he said, what you want from me right now is you want me to justify your sin. And I said to to him, I thought I came to a counsellor to feel better and you're making me feel feel worse. And he said, basically, well, you've got to feel worse to feel better. And one of the things that we do when it comes to pornography or or sexual sin is is we use really bad language around it. I stumbled. I fell. I slipped. It, it, It gives the impression that, you know, there was something in my way and I didn't see it, but no... It's actually our choice. From that book, Ray Ortland says this, No man or woman is helped by using nicey-nice hypocritical words like, I slipped up today, or passive words like, this happened to me. Every man who wants his freedom or woman who wants her freedom back must start using true words that match what porn is. So how's this for a next level honesty? If you look up porn, 
be honest enough to say to God, today I entertain myself with sexual exploitation. Or, today I joined in the abuse of women. Or, today I watched her degradation for my pleasure. Or, today I took my stand against you and with Satan. They're sobering words, aren't they? But they are real and they are true words. Because when we click on that website, that's exactly what we're doing. That is exactly what we're doing. But when we sin in other areas, that is what we're doing. It may be a small, we think it's a small sin, but we're taking our stand against the Lord Jesus and with Satan. That is what sin is. And unless we're able to actually come before God and call it for what it is, we're not actually going to deal with our sin. And notice what David says about how how deeply entrenched his sin is. Have a look at verse uh, 5 with me. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. David is saying when he was a mere zygote, sinfulness was in his DNA. And without Jesus, this is you. No matter your sin, no matter your predisposition to sin, this is you and this is me. And unless you're able to be honest with yourself, you won't be able to deal with your sin, your guilt and your shame. Because sin loves to fester in the darkness. Some of you guys now are going, well, Hans, I don't have a problem with porn. Be very careful. If you are thinking that and you are kind of feeling good about that, you've got a far greater issue. You've got a problem with self-righteousness. And that self-righteousness will send you to hell far quicker than a problem with porn, let me tell you. If you have a look at, look at the life of Jesus, he encountered people who were sinning sexually. He had compassion on them. But he had very harsh words, harsh words of judgment to those people who are full of self-righteousness. So, so what, what we shouldn't do right now is kind of go, well, I don't have this problem. Guess what? This is us. No matter our sin, this is, our, this is God's assessment of us. And it's really hard. That's why we don't think of ourselves like this, because it's very hard. I remember visiting my, my grandmother when she was still alive in a, um, a nursing home. And there was a lady with dementia, and she was, she was walking along very slowly, and there was a mirror right there, and she turned to the mirror and she said, what are you looking at, you old, haggard, sad, angry witch? And then one of the nurses came up to her, and tapped her on the shoulder and said, Honey, that's a mirror. And she realized that she was speaking to herself. And you could see the sadness that came over her. And she broke down and cried. See, seeing ourselves for what we really are is very, very hard, but it is healing. You won't find healing when you blame everyone else for your problems and your sin. But you will find healing when you start with yourself. You will start getting free when you start getting honest. 
Do you have the courage to be honest with yourself and with your God? That is David's God, but let's have a look at David's plea. Let's have a look at verse 7 with me. It says this, Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sin and blot out all my iniquity. Once again, uh, David is asking God to actually deal with his sin completely. It, it, it's, it's almost like, you know, I'm not sure if you've seen those ads where, you know, someone's got a white shirt and they pour red wine and they just say, pour this on it and it's gone completely. God, David is saying, can you do that but with my sin? Take it away totally. And this is what, if you trust in Jesus, this is what Jesus has done for you. He has taken away your filth, your guilt, your shame, absolutely everything. In the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 7, there's all God's people and they're standing before God and they've got, they've got these white robes on which signify that God has taken away everything that, that stains them or mars them. And if, this is, if you are a Christian, you are this. This is, this is your reality. You stand before the Lord Jesus, totally cleansed of your sin. The theologians call this a word expiation. We're going to sing a song, um, uh, you know, next. Jesus, thank you. And it says, uh, your blood has washed away my sin. Jesus, thank you. What you can think of is your blood has washed away my sin. Expiation. That's your reality if you trust in Jesus. And I, I don't care what you did last night or last week or 20 years ago that you feel guilty of, that you feel your own sin. If you trust in Jesus, Jesus doesn't see it anymore. That's the beauty of the gospel. That is the beauty of the gospel. And so here's the thing. When Satan comes before you and he whispers in your ear and he reminds you of your sin, what are you meant to do? Remember what that, song sing, uh, what, what that song says that we sing. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of, my, of the guilt within, would I look and see him there who made it enter all my sin? What you've got to do every single time when you are feeling guilty, remember what Jesus has done and say, yes, Satan, you're absolutely right about my sin. It is absolutely terrible. I took a stand with you, Satan, against the Lord Jesus. But guess what? Jesus' love and his forgiveness is stronger than you, stronger than my guilt, stronger than my sin. He has dealt with it absolutely, completely. Over the last few weeks, I've been uh, talking with a, a few men at church who over these uh, over this few last few weeks, um, they have talked to me about uh, their porn problem, right? And, and the, the first step I say, uh, other than seeing it for the sin that it is, I say what you've got to do is remind yourself of the grace that Jesus has shown to you. Because Satan wants you to feel guilt and more guilt and more guilt and more shame. And you'll just feel worse and then you'll run back to it. But if you break that cycle of guilt and shame by reminding yourself of God's amazing grace, that is one of the first steps that you've got to take to dealing with this. 
remind yourself of guilt, of grace, not your guilt. And whatever sin you're dealing with, it's the same thing. Maybe you've got a problem with telling the truth. And and lies just seem to flow out of your mouth without you even trying, and you feel so guilty. You've got to remind yourself of what Jesus has done for you because that is your reality. Your identity is not found in your past or your present mistakes. It is found in Jesus and his death and cleansing death for you. But notice what, 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 uh, what David prays. Have a look at verse 10 with me. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. He, he, is, he is praying a dangerous prayer that God would take out this heart of stone and give him a heart of flesh. To, 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 to take away his heart that loves what God hates and give him a heart that loves what God loves. I wonder if that's your prayer. And, and why does he ask for a spirit to sustain him? Because this is going to be hard. This is going to be hard. How God works in our lives is is sometimes very painful and very hard, but it's actually a good thing. And here's a quote from C.S. Lewis, which gives you an illustration of it. I'm not sure. I think I might have put this on the wrong place in your outline. I apologize for that. But let, let me read out this quote. Imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps, you understand what he is doing. He is getting the drains right and stopping the leaks in the roof and so on and so on. You know that those jobs needed doing and you are not surprised, but presently he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and does not seem to make sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he is building quite a different house from the one that you thought of throwing out a new wing here and putting on an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were going to be made into a decent little cottage, but he is building a palace. He intends to come in and live in it himself. What is God doing with you as as you painfully repent of your sin, As, as, as you humbly talk to people about your sins so that they can walk with you and restore you gently, as Galatians 6.1 says. God is making you not into this pathetic little cottage. He's making you into a mansion, a mansion that makes Buckingham Palace look like the place I live in. Good, but not great. See, that is what God is doing in your life. That is what you are praying as you pray, God, create in me a new heart. And finally, let's have a look at David's final prayer. Verse 13 with me. Then I will teach transgressors your way so that sinners will turn back to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God. You who are my saviour, my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. The result of feeling forgiven, the result of being forgiven and actually experiencing that is praising. And notice what David wants to do. He wants to tell the world about Jesus. 
Have you ever noticed when a, a person becomes a Christian, they want to tell everybody. When I became a Christian when I was 14, um, my friends actually said I came across as Ned Flanders crossed with Rambo because I was like really holy, like, they thought I was really holy like Ned Flanders and I was really aggressive like Rambo and so I was Ned Flanders crossed with Rambo. But what happened was I was full of joy because my sin has been forgiven. And that's what's going to happen for, for us. But when we, when we feel on a heart level that God has dealt with my sin, my guilt, my shame, I want to tell the world about Jesus. A lot of us, we think what we need for evangelism, you know, for us to be more evangelistic, is more training. Can I just say, especially in Sydney, we've been almost overtrained with evangelism. Some of us have gone through three or four different ways of sharing about Jesus, right? We've got two ways to live. We've got the Romans Road. We've got all this stuff, right? And yet, why don't we do it? I think it is because the sin in our lives is holding us back. It is because there is, there is this sin which is blocking us from having joy in Jesus. And if we only dealt with that sin, we would have joy in Jesus and we wanna, would want to tell everybody, right? You, you show me, you show me a joyous evangelist. I will show you a person who's joyous in Jesus. I will show you a person who, who takes the hard road of dealing with this sin, of repenting. And a lot of the time, I don't want to say all the time, I don't want to say all the time, but I want to say a lot of the time, a lot of the time, we aren't great evangelists, not because we don't know two ways to live enough. It is because we know our sin too much and we don't know the Savior's love and forgiveness far enough. Because if we did, we will be Overjoyed like David, he is. Verse 16 says, You do not delight in sacrifice or I will bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. You, God, will not despise. Maybe you're thinking here, if I just pull my socks up. No, that's not the sacrifice that God wants. The sacrifice is a broken and contrite spirit. If you're saying, man, I can beat this sin, I'll just pull my socks up, that's pride. That's not a broken and contrite spirit. And finally, what does David want? In the end, verse 18, May it please you to prosper Zion, to build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in the sacrifices of the righteous. In burnt offerings offered whole, then bulls will be offered on your altar. What would happen if everyone in this church prayed like David, dealt with their sin like David? Well, I think God would be pleased to bring revival. That's what David is wanting here is Old Testament revival. That's what we want in our church here. What would happen if we all confessed our sin to each other? If, I don't know if you guys are having a Bible study this week. I know that some groups meet every week and some meet every second week. What, what if we actually said, hey guys, we read the Bible a lot and that's great, but what if we actually talked to each other and said, here's a sin I'm really struggling with. I just want to confess it to you guys so you would help me with that. 
What, what, what if instead of after church, oh, I know there's only going to be five or ten minutes because we've got the members meeting, but what about instead of after church we talked about, you know, the footy or how the Golden State Warriors are now 500 or whatever, it doesn't really matter, or our work or whatever. What, what if we actually said, how are you dealing with that sin? What if the men actually talked to each other and said, how are you actually going with pornography? How are you going with going to the gym when it seems like every second girl there is wearing like all this tight hugging stuff and you, you find it hard to focus? Uh, what, what if we talked like that? What if we had the humility and the courage and the love for each other to do that? What would, what would we see? I dare say we would see repentance. We would see joy. And I dare say we'd see revival. The question is not whether we want to see revival, but how bad do we want it? Do we want God to revive our hearts before he revives our nation? Because if you have a look at the history of revival... Revivals generally start with a group of people repenting of their own sin first. And then God chooses to use them. Are we willing to do that? Or are we willing, or do we just want to keep this facade up that everything's okay, knowing that theologically everything's not okay with everybody? In fact, we're all broken, we're all sinful, and we need it. I remember the first time Back at Moore College, I walked into a room with a bunch of brothers who were all struggling with pornography and actually talking about it for, for the first time. I remember losing sleep over it. I, I have phone calls from a couple of friends, a couple of mates, and we keep each other accountable in this area. And if if there, there's one particular guy who will send me a text and will say, I need to talk with you about this, and so I'm expecting his call, and when, when that comes through, I am full of... Uh, I go, okay, well, you know, such and such is going to talk about these three things. That's great. But then if I see his name on my phone and he hasn't told me what he wants to talk to me about, I go, oh, he's going to ask me how I'm going. And no matter if, you know, I'm going well in this area right now, right? Thanks, praise be to God. But I'm still filled with, oh, I've got to talk about this. It's awkward. And yet I know that he's loving me. I know that we're brothers who work through this together. I know that he wants what's best for me and my marriage and my family. And so he asked me the hard questions. And, and afterwards, I feel loved. And when I ring him up and I ask him the same questions, right, he feels loved even though it's kind of awkward. But we do that because we love each other and we want to see us flourish in Jesus. We'll ask those hard questions. We'll confess our sin to each other for that. But it's hard. Some of you guys are dealing with sin in, in, in very dark places. Can I just say, if you talk to us, we're not going to condemn you. We're going, we're going to walk with you and restore you gently. We're going to point you to the Lord Jesus who forgave you for all your sin, past, present and future, no matter what you've done. 
And it's my prayer that you would do that so you would find the forgiveness and the joy that you really want and you really need. What we're going to do now, as we've been talking about the forgiveness that Jesus has won for us, we're going to be we're going to remember that in communion. We're going to remember that as as we eat the bread and as we drink the grape juice, we're going to be reminded of the very fact that Jesus has taken our guilt and our shame away. And so with that in mind, I'm going to pray a prayer that will help us get ready for communion. And then I'm going to invite the communion stewards up and I will give more uh, instruction then. Let's pray. God of all good, we bless you for the means of grace in the finished work of Jesus. Teach us to see it in your loving purposes and the joy and strength of our souls. You have prepared for us a feast here, and though we are unworthy to sit down as your guests, we wholly rest on Jesus and his merits. And we hide ourselves beneath his righteousness. When we hear his tender invitation and see his wondrous grace, we cannot hesitate but must come to you in love. By your spirit, enliven our faith rightly uh, to discern the Savior and enliven our spirit to apprehend the Savior. We pray that Jesus is not just something we believe in, but when we think of the gospel, may our hearts leap with joy. When we think of the forgiveness that he won, may our hearts leap with joy. While we, we gaze, uh, while we look at, at this, this bread and this wine or grape juice, which signify our Saviour's death, may we ponder why he died. And may we hear him say, I gave my life to purchase yours. I presented myself as an offering to rid you of your sin. My shed blood was, was spilled to blot out your guilt. My side was open to make you clean. I endured your curses to set you free. I bore your condemnation to satisfy divine justice. Today, as we eat the bread and drink this wine or grape juice, may we rightly grasp the breadth and the length of this great love. May we draw near and obey the Lord Jesus. May we extend our hands as beggars to take the bread, to receive the cup, to eat and drink and testify before all of us here that we have been saved by you and that we gladly, in faith and reverence, love our Lord Jesus, who is our strength, our life, our joy, our delight. In this communion, we remember his eternal love, his boundless grace, his infinite compassion, his agony, his cross, his redemption, and we receive assurance of pardon, assurance of adoption, assurance of life, assurance of glory.
as the outward elements nourish our bodies. So may your indwelling spirit invigorate our souls until that day we hunger and thirst no more and sit with Jesus at his heavenly feast. Amen. I invite the communion stewards to come now. Thank you.